Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. If you woke up this morning and didn't pay attention to what happened in the past 24 hours, you got a real surprise about world events. Iran, a country that we have been antagonizing for several weeks now, struck back at the United States last night by firing missiles at several U.S. bases in Iraq. We are waiting this hour to hear from the President of the United States about those attacks, about the policy positions that he's taking with regard to Iran and what he might plan to do in response. Meanwhile, though, we want to talk about these tensions with Iran, where they're going, and why all of this seems to be happening all of a sudden. If you think back just a month, a month and a half ago, nobody was talking about U.S. tensions with Iran. No one was talking about the possibility of war, which seems really very present in people's minds right now uh, and uh, is a, an issue that I think a lot of people are probably quite concerned about. How did we get to the precipice of war with Iran so quickly and why is it happening? We want to talk about that this hour and we especially want to hear from you. What do you think about these actions that the president of the United States has taken with regard to Iran? What do you think about the suddenness of all of this? What do you think about the timing of this, given that we are about to launch a presidential campaign in this country and that the president seems to be lagging behind some of his Democratic rivals? Is this all a version of the movie Wag the Dog, in which the president of the United States starts a war to distract from domestic problems and poor poll numbers as a way of propping himself up. We want to hear from you all hour about this issue, and we want to try to address some of your concerns if you have things that you don't understand or don't know about the country of Iran or the Middle East. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we will work you into the conversation. And joining us this hour to talk about what is going on in Iran and in the Middle East is Saeed Khan. He's a senior lecturer of Near and Middle East History and Politics at Wayne State University. He also now has a new title. He is the Director of Global Studies at Wayne. Uh, Saeed, welcome to the studio. Thanks for having me back, Stephen. Yeah. And again, I as soon as I want to remind listeners that as soon as the president starts talking, we are going to go to NPR coverage from the White House to hear what he has to say. We will come back afterward to react to what he's saying. So uh, stay tuned to hear from President Donald Trump about what happened last night and what he plans to do in the coming days. But Saeed, I want to start with you giving us the basics about what is going on. How did the United States relationship with Iran get where it is today, uh, going back to support for the Shah of Iran and his fall during the Iranian Revolution, but of course, focusing on now, what happened in the last month or month and a half that brought us to this level of brinksmanship? Sure. Well, first of all, uh, we have to go a little bit even farther back than support for the Shah 
40 years ago. We go back to ago. the 50s, right? We got to go back to the 50s when uh, the United States and Great Britain uh, decided to uh, stage a coup d'etat to remove a democratically elected uh, Mohammad Mossadegh. Uh, his crime, so to speak, was to nationalize the Iranian oil industry which at that time was under the control of the British. Uh, any country, according to international law, is allowed to nationalize any industry within its borders, provided it pay fair market value. The problem for the British, though, is that it was going to be present fair market value, and then they were going to get cut off from uh, the possibility of future profits uh, by owning the, uh, the oil. So as a result of that, uh, we go ahead and get rid of Mossadegh. Uh, we then uh, double down and triple down on the support for the Shah. And given the fact that uh, the Shah, like Mossadegh, were staunchly anti-communist, they did not want the Soviet Union to be meddling in their affairs in the region. And remember, back then, uh, the Soviet Union was practically at their border. Azerbaijan and Armenia um, on the southern uh, edge of the Soviet Union, this was part of the Soviet Empire bordering uh, Iran. Well, in order to then go ahead and shore up uh, the stability and uh, part of U.S. foreign policy to contain a Soviet expansion possibly into the Persian Gulf. The U.S., particularly through the CIA, uh, was working with the Shah's secret police force, the Savak, and the Shah felt as though he had carte blanche to go ahead and suppress any kind of political dissent uh, that may uh, come his way. Uh, fast forward to the mid-1970s, and you see that this uh, dissent is intensifying. The money that was now coming into the uh, Iranian treasury thanks to the Arab oil embargo of 1973, uh, greatly uh, increasing revenue, was not being felt by uh, the average person. By 1978, the protests become not only more intensive, uh, they become quite uh, violent, the violence coming from the side of the Shah. He is diagnosed with stage four uh, pancreatic cancer. He's now of two minds. Should I stay in Iran and leave behind a legacy for my eldest son to succeed me, or should I leave to get medical treatment? Finally, in uh, early January of 1979, he leaves the country for good, mm -hmm. dies a year later in Cairo. Uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, who was the leading dissident and had been in exile in Paris, flies back on February the 1st victoriously, and we now have a revolution uh, in the country. As far as the United States was concerned, the Iranians didn't have that much of a beef at this time. The two demands that they had were return the Shah so he can stand trial in Iran for the atrocities that he committed against the Iranian people, and go ahead and release uh, his bank accounts because they believed that he had in fact stolen the wealth of the country for his own personal gain. Uh, the United States refused to do that. That became contentious. And then when protests in front of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran uh, were successful in entering uh, the embassy, the protesters found there the CIA bureau office and then discovered, for anyone who's seen the movie Argo, that there was a mass uh, effort to try to destroy documents, which then showed the level of coordination between the CIA and the Shah's secret police force. That then, of course, led to the taking of uh, well, uh, uh, quite a few uh, Americans working there as hostages. The sick, the infirmed, uh, the pregnant were released, and 52 were held for 444 mm -hmm. days, released, interestingly enough, on the inauguration of uh, Ronald, of Ronald Reagan, Reagan on January yes. 20th, 1981. Uh, we have not had diplomatic relations with Iran ever since. 
1980, the United States supported uh, Saddam Hussein. Boy, what, a, what, what an irony yep. and how long ago. In his uh, eight-year war against Iran, which led to 1.5 million deaths, uh, the United States also uh, breached its own diplomatic impasse with Iran, with the so-called Iran-Contra affair in the late 1980s, by which, in order to circumvent the Boland Amendment, uh, which Congress had passed to prohibit the uh, U.S. government from selling weapons to the Contras in uh, Nicaragua directly. Uh, the Reagan administration decided to circumvent that, involving Israel and Saudi Arabia as well. So we see that it is a rather strange relationship. More mm -hmm. recently, though, what has happened is uh, this proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran for regional dominance. Mm -hmm. Uh, basically, since the last 40 years, since the severance of diplomatic relations, there is no longer balance within the region, and the United States has decided that it will simply listen to its allies in the region, which are Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and by extension, Israel. As a result of this, uh, President Obama decided that perhaps to restore some level of stability to then tamp down the various proxy wars that were occurring in places like Yemen and Syria uh, by extension in Lebanon, it would be a good idea to try to uh, negotiate with Iran, uh, move it away from being seen as a pariah state, uh, build some confidence and trust. And that was really uh, the basis of the uh, JCPOA, more colloquially known as the Iran nuclear deal, which then became uh, almost a mantra by uh, then-candidate Trump and then uh, subsequently President Trump to go ahead and dismantle. So in many ways, what we're seeing is a domino effect mm -hmm. leading to the intensification of Iran's actions within the region, uh, both through its proxies as well as directly. And and the, the thing that sets this off right now, the thing that encourages President Trump to assassinate Soleimani is what? So Qasem Soleimani was uh, the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, uh, Guard Council, which is sort of their elite force, also known as the Quds Force. Soleimani uh, has been said to be the second most powerful man in all of Iran. Uh, he, in fact, reported directly to Supreme Leader Grand Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. Uh, he did not have to first report to the president of Iran, uh, um, Hassan Rouhani, or to the foreign minister, Javed Zarif. So for Soleimani, he was incredibly influential in not only being the head of the IRGC within Iran, but also coordinating various uh, proxy groups that were uh, under uh, Iranian support, whether it was Hezbollah in, uh, in Lebanon or whether it was uh, the al-Assad regime directly in Syria or various uh, militias known uh, as the PMG in, uh, in Iraq. He was responsible for all of these, more perhaps we could say as a counterpunch to Saudi and other Gulf state uh, encroachments uh, to try to gain more and more power. Uh, he was without a doubt powerful. He was without a doubt uh, someone who had blood on his hands because after all this is a military uh, conflict and certainly a lot of civilian blood on his hands when it came to places like uh, Syria. At the same time, when we're looking at this strategically and as a matter of policy, Qasem Soleimani was ironically uh, America's best ally in Iraq when it came to fighting ISIS. 
He was by far the most effective in going ahead and reducing the footprint of ISIS there. And as has been uh, admitted by even Pentagon officials, there was coordination between Soleimani and uh, uh, U.S. and coalition forces in order to have this common objective Mm -hmm. of reducing the potency of ISIS. Having him taken out in this way, uh, in such a dramatic fashion, uh, really was uh, perhaps one of the most unwise decisions that was made, and really an overreach by by the the United States. Mm-hmm. And and this complicated relationship, I think, echoes the complications that exist in the region. One of the reasons that we are, I think, quick to very simple narratives about what is going on there is because the truth and understanding the truth is really hard given our own actions in the region and given the complications that exist among the different nations and peoples who live in that region. Well, you're absolutely right, Stephen. And part of this is uh, we have to wonder if we're updating our software when it comes to U.S. foreign policy and understanding what's going on in the region. Just one uh, uh, fact that people really aren't talking about, but you really have to broaden the concentric circles of this uh, beyond the soundbite. while Soleimani was being assassinated, around the same time, Iran was conducting joint naval exercises with Russia and China. Now, to not understand how that is connected not only to what's happening today, but also to the nuclear deal, uh, means that we're kind of falling into the trap of using uh, an, an old um, operating system in understanding the region. One of the objectives that Obama had with the nuclear deal like it or not, with whatever kinds of flaws it was, was not so much concerned with uh, reducing the potential of a nuclear weapons program for Iran, which again is is sort of a, 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 a dubious thing on its own, but whether or not this would allow the United States to have, for the first time in 40 years, a rejuvenated sense of influence and leverage with Tehran at a time when China and Russia were just simply clamoring for that opportunity. The removal of American influence as a result of pulling out of the Iranian nuclear deal has certainly then pushed uh, Iran well into the patronage of both Beijing and Moscow. Mm -hmm. And it may simply be irreversible. Mm. My guest is Saeed Khan. He's a senior lecturer of Near and Middle East History and Politics at Wayne State University, also the new director of Global Studies at Wayne State University. We are talking about Iran and the United States and these escalating tensions escalating conflict that is unfolding between the two nations. Where did it come from? Where is it headed? And what will the effect be, not just in the Middle East, among countries and peoples who have had a very long history of conflict and difficulty figuring out how to live peaceably together, but also the effect here on the United States and us. Uh, Are we ready for an escalation of tensions with yet another country in the Middle East? Are we ready for war? And I think that is an important dimension of all of this. This is a word that now is pretty prevalent in headlines and in discussions about the Middle East and Iran. Uh, Would you support the idea of going to war with Iran, even in in, uh, a form that may not look exactly like uh, what we did in Iraq uh, in 2003? Uh, would Would you support the idea of 
sending troops, sending more troops to the region, uh, attacking uh, positions in Iran, as the president says and has threatened, attaching, attacking cultural institutions in places like Iran. I think that is the central question uh, that we need to address when we're thinking about what's going on with Iran. Would you support uh, a, a conflict with that country? And I think uh, important question for callers would you sacrifice your own family uh, on, on behalf of that cause? In other words, if you had a son or a daughter who serves in the U.S. military, is this something that you would be comfortable with them doing? Would you consider that uh, an honorable sacrifice if you were to send a son or daughter off to fight a war against Iraq? Uh, call and tell us. Call and tell us if you think this is something that has to be done given the misbehavior of Iranian officials, uh, given the, the history of tensions between the countries. Or do you think that this is all kind of misplaced aggression? Is this about politics here in the United States? Is it about President Trump's apparent naivete about the way things work in the Middle East, uh, a lot of the things that he says don't seem to reflect the history or even the recent events that have happened in the Middle East. As always, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we will work you into the conversation. Let's start with Levi in Southfield. Levi, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. How are you today? Good. How are you? Good. I want. I first wanted to uh, thank Dr. Uh, Saeed Khan. He gave a great class at the Jewish Federation last um, spring with Howard Lupuloff uh -huh. on similarities and differences between uh, Islam and Judaism. We enjoyed it very much, and he's he's one of the funniest people I've ever met. And I. Uh, Sorry that we have such a serious topic today. I expect that there'll be no humor. Hmm. Uh, but I, I did want to explore Iraq for, uh, for some background for a minute, because Iraq is a Shiite uh, majority country, mm -hmm. which has come, come to power under the democratization there. Uh, and so it's a natural ally to Iran. So where does this leave the Sunnis in Iraq? Are they, are they still pro-U.S.? Do they want us to stay? Or are they lining up with their Shiite uh, countrymen? Uh, great question, uh, Levi. I appreciate the call. Sayyid Khan, uh, Iraq, of course, is a neighbor of Iran. Our involvement in Iraq has a lot to do with what is happening in Iran and in the region right now also has to do with the tensions, of course, that that uh, that we're experiencing with Iran. But talk about Iraq and the religious dynamic among people there and how it relates to what we're seeing unfold in Iran right now. Sure. Uh, Levi, thank you so much for the call and uh, wonderful to hear your voice again. Uh, Iraq, uh, of course, was fused together as three provinces from the former Ottoman Empire uh, in the aftermath of World War I uh, in order to uh, forward British strategic interests in the region, particularly over oil. What has happened after 2003 and the removal of Saddam Hussein is, uh, as Levi rightly said, a move toward democratization but without having uh, very necessary circuit breakers and safeguards for minority communities. There was going to be this inevitable backlash uh, because the Shiite population, the majority population, one that had certainly been 
uh, beleaguered and persecuted by uh, Saddam, as had the Kurds in the north, uh, were now seeking some kind of retribution uh, that they could then leverage through majoritarian forms of government. This put uh, the Sunnis in a very marginalized position. Some of them uh, became so disenfranchised that uh, leadership from within that is what spawned ISIS within Iraq. Now, Levi is correct in saying that the majority population and that of the ruling uh, body in Iraq is Shiite, but it's important to make the distinction that they are Shiite Arab as opposed to Iran, which is Shiite Persian. And while religion and religious identity or sectarian identity does play some role, it's incredibly important to recognize how much culture, ethnicity plays a role. And so what we're really dealing with then is a kind of bizarre rock-scissors-paper game that at any given time, which one of these identity markers prevails over the other? It would probably surprise many of the listeners that uh, as uh, recently as uh, a year ago, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of uh, of Saudi Arabia, a full-out Sunni, of course, and uh, really spearheading uh, this uh, this uh, Cold War w- and, uh, with uh, with Iran, uh, invited a firebrand Shiite cleric by the name of Muqtadir al-Sadr to Saudi Arabia. Now, on the one hand, one would say, is why would he possibly give this level of cognizance to a, a Shiite leader? After all, uh, Saudi Arabia routinely executes uh, Shias uh, whom they con- uh, consider to be uh, guilty of sedition and perhaps treason within their own kingdom. But what he was trying to do was send an overture to appeal to the Arabness of Muqtadir al-Sadr and his followers, uh, who are aplenty, to come over to the other side of the equation to wean himself off what uh, the Iraqi Shia were feeling was uh, the overbearing nature of the Persians. Uh, the Persians have a very long and storied uh, civilizational history, uh, very culturally sophisticated compared to uh, what could be argued the more nomadic, itinerant culture of, uh, of uh, particularly Saudi Arabia. And the idea then of saying, you do not need to be patronized anymore, you do not need to be condescended to anymore, was at least then the olive branch that was being offered. Currently in Iraq, there's that similar sense of which way do we go? Iran certainly is patronizing us, uh, it is supporting us, but we're not thrilled by the baggage that comes with it. What are our other options? Right now, it seems that the Sunni population is uh, is certainly confused, but I would actually argue, and we see this happening with some of the unrest in Iraq before the assassination of Soleimani, the protests against the government, that the Sunnis and the Shiites and the Kurds as well in Iraq are all fatigued with Iraq being the battleground for other people's uh, a proxy uh, for that's other, right for that's right things, yeah. i think that they would just prefer that people picked up their toys and left and left iraq to its own devices yeah. okay we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to continue our conversation about what's going on in iran what's going on between iran and the united states uh, we're going to keep saeed khan here with us and we are going to get to more of your calls gene in detroit john on the east side simon in hazel park chris in Howell. We will hear from you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit. 
Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. We're talking today about Iran and the relationship between the United States and Iran, which has deteriorated markedly in the last few weeks and may continue to deteriorate. Yesterday, Iran struck at several U.S. bases in Iraq. Uh, My guest today, though, is Saeed Khan, a senior lecturer of Near and Middle East History and Politics, also director of Global Studies at Wayne State University. And we really want to hear from you this hour about what you think is going on in Iran. What do you think about what is going on in Iran and whether you support what the president is doing? Do you think that an escalation of tensions between the United States and Iran is justified at this point? And I want to hear from you about a more personal aspect of this. If you have a son or daughter who is part of the U.S. military, if you had a son or daughter who was part of the U.S. military, would you be willing to send them off to war against Iran under these circumstances? Do you think this is the kind of thing that the U.S. military ought to be engaging at this point? I think that is the really critical question about support for uh, foreign uh, conflicts. How much would you be willing to sacrifice on behalf of that? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Let's go to Chris and Howell. Chris, welcome to the hey, show. Hey, how's everyone doing? Good, how are you? I can't explain, you know, just doing the drive to work. Go ahead, Chris. Um, yeah, I think uh, I fully support what's going on with Iran. I think that we should stay fully involved. I support the president's decision to essentially escalate the force. Um, I don't think, however, that we should strike historical landmarks. Um, that makes us no better than than uh, ISIL at that point, um, as we saw what they did in Iraq and mm-hmm. Syria. Um, you know, and that, that's that's just kind of a, uh, I think that part's a little moody, and that's fine. You know, everybody has their attention. But as for the U.S. and being prepared for this, we've been fighting GWAT for 20 years now. We have the best war fighters tactics, and we've learned a lot over the last 20, 20 years fighting these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and other countries abroad, and I've been a part of that. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've seen not just the political side, but also the war side, you know, on the ground things going on. And I've seen the proxy government of Iran work through Iraq and take control of it and really just kind of decimate everything that we've ever worked for for the past 15 years. We say yes, they say no, and then Iraq comes back and says no. You know, whatever the case may be, it is in a simplistic form. But that's, that's what we have. And the Iranians are so deeply involved in that area right now that nothing will ever become whole unless it gets dealt with. There's a snake in the grass, and we got to find it. So, and we found it, so, and, and, and we got to cut the head off of it. And that's what it is. Okay, so, Soleimani's so, responsible for hundreds, if not thousands, of U.S. soldiers' deaths due to weapons and tactics that he introduced during the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. So, so Chris, let me ask you this. The last 17 years of war that we have waged against Afghanistan, against forces in Afghanistan and in Iraq, do you consider those successful? You consider them successful to a point. The problem is, is that we're fighting people that don't 
essentially report to a government. They don't care. They just want to be. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the people, there's the government, and then there's the economy. We're always obviously economy driven. We want to get Iraq and Afghanistan and even Kurdistan back on the world economy to help them and also help us. Yes, we have our we have our reasonings behind everything, but these people don't want to be controlled and they see us as as infiltrators and people that are going to corrupt their system, but the system's already corrupt. We've we've seen that for years and years. But if they our can't even get their own stuff under control. Right. But if our intervention is not fixing that problem, then why is further intervention in yet another country the right answer? You have to control the chaos. There's chaos regardless, but at least we can control it somewhat. And yes, lives are going to be risked. I've been willing to risk my life for the past 15 years of the nearly 20-year, as you said, 17-year war. Mm -hmm. And I've been on every single country that we've touched, whether it's Somalia, Libya, Yemen, uh, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. I've been there. I've put boots on ground. I've seen the situations. I know what's going on. And it's, it's, you have to control the chaos. It's not a perfect thing. But unfortunately, we're the world's 911 force. I don't know why. I don't understand it. I get it to a point that we need to keep it away from our home front. I mean, you had an issue in Detroit the other day that the Iraqi consulate opened up for mourning. Never once has I ever, have I ever heard the Iraqi consulate open up for Iraqi mourning before until Soleimani was built. Uh, Chris, I really appreciate the call and your perspective. I mean, somebody who's been, as you say, on the ground in these places where we have waged these wars for such a long time. Obviously, I respect immensely the sacrifice that you make and the service that you give uh, to the country. And I'm really glad you called and shared that perspective. Uh, Saeed Khan, react to what Chris is saying, that in other words, uh, we, we have to to manage the chaos in these places, and that that requires military intervention. Well, I mean, controlling chaos is always helped when you don't create the chaos in the first place. And uh, 2003 uh, creates the perfect example in in a country like Iraq, and it's it's rather cynical to then uh, go ahead and point the finger at a people to seem incapable of doing something when their society is uh, is essentially thrown upside down like a snow globe. Um, the, the simple answer is that there's a real question about whether the United States needs to be in a region. Uh, the Iranians can actually respond to that question and say, it's our region. Uh, like it or not, uh, as far as their tactics or their level of penetration in uh, into Iraq, I seem to recall uh, we had something known as the Monroe Doctrine and uh, the Good Neighbor Policy in which we sort of painted the entire Western Hemisphere as ours uh, to then uh, repel anybody from acting over here. And regarding the idea about Soleimani uh, being responsible for hundreds and thousands of American uh, lives uh, simply because uh, he was responsible for introducing the weapons, this unfortunately then is something that is uh, echoed every single day in the region when uh, the debris of American weapons are seen on the ground in Yemen or in Syria, or in Iraq, and the kind of blame allocation that they make regarding not only, uh, uh, for example, a general or a military commander, uh, but also the American people who elect those officials into office who make these decisions. So I think it becomes a little bit murky when we start to engage in the kinds of uh, easy sound bites of, uh, of demonizing people. It's much better to go ahead and take a look at the policies 
and whether or not these policies really advance uh, reasonable and uh, necessary American policy um, and strategic interests in the region. So, so Chris was saying that the interventions that we've undertaken in Iraq and Afghanistan maybe have not been 100% successful, but that they have controlled a certain amount of, of chaos in those countries. Uh, certainly the reports, the recent report about the war in Afghanistan, the review of what actually happened there suggests that's not as true as the American public has been led to believe, that that uh, there was a lot of misinformation out of both the Bush and the Obama administrations about what was going on in Afghanistan and whether it was working, how it was working. But but I guess my next question is the flip side of that. Let's put aside military intervention for a second and talk about diplomacy, which we've also exercised an awful lot of in that region for a very long time. And a lot of people would say that hasn't been very successful either. So whether you support or oppose military intervention, I think you have to have an alternative path to suggest. And the alternative path of constant diplomacy, a lot of people say, is just as ineffective as military intervention. Can you address whether you think that's true? Sure. Well, I think, first of all, uh, when it comes to diplomacy, there's not just one playbook. Uh, It has been uh, an unfortunate element of uh, American foreign policy uh, that it truly doesn't understand the anthropology of any of the actors on the ground and society's case in point in Iran. Uh, I don't think they ever expected what was going to be the anthropology of the people of Iran when it came to the reaction to the assassination of Soleimani. It would have been very easy and predictable to see that the whole notion of martyrdom was really baked well into the cake in Iranian Shi'i society. It invokes and evokes many very powerful and passionate Uh, um, ideas uh, and emotions and feelings. And we saw that played out and arguably uh, played a role in Iran taking the kind of action that they did when they did uh, regarding uh, yesterday's uh, missile attacks. Similarly with Afghanistan, the notion of planting in a Jeffersonian democracy in Afghanistan was folly to, to begin with. It's a much more tribal society. The mistake is also saying that anything short of or different from a Jeffersonian democracy is somehow the other inferior. Uh, It is somehow the other primitive. Uh, We deal with even some of our closest allies who don't have Jeffersonian democracies, whether it's Great Britain or actually any country in the European Union, Australia, Canada as well. So I think we need to then become a lot more sophisticated with understanding what are the pieces on the the board and how can we really move them around to effectuate uh, a better need. That seems to be, unfortunately, one of the most elusive elements when it comes to U.S. foreign policy, not just in the Middle East, but certainly in this area that there are so many flashpoints, it would behoove us to be a little bit more refined by how we do it. Okay. Uh, We're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking about Iran and the United States, the escalating tensions, the escalating conflict, and what might come next. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Gene in Detroit, Tariq in Detroit, John on the east side, Ricky in Detroit. We'll get to you next. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We're talking about Iran this hour and the escalating tensions between the United States and Iran. Last night, we saw that country attack several bases in Iraq where U.S. troops are housed in response to the assassination of a top Iranian official by the United States last week. What is coming next? Is it war? Is it a de-escalation and a return to diplomacy? Or is it some mix of the two? We are waiting to hear from the President of the United States about that. He is expected to speak at about 11 a.m. today. WDET is going to carry coverage from NPR when that happens. Meanwhile, we are talking about all of this with Saeed Khan, who is a senior lecturer of Near and Middle East History and Politics at Wayne State University. He's also the new director of Global Studies there. We want to hear from you, though, what you think about what's going on in Iraq. What are the things that go through your mind when you watch this escalation of tensions and conflict between the two countries? Are you somebody who says, hey, it's about time we got tougher with states like Iran and responded to the things that they did with uh, military uh, intervention as opposed to just diplomacy? Or are you somebody who says, look, we have been involved in this region for a very long time. The longest wars in U.S. history have unfolded in this region over the last two decades, and enough is enough. Alternatively, are you somebody who looks at this and says, this is not about Iran or the Middle East, but is about domestic politics, a president who seems to be in some trouble heading into an election year and maybe is reaching for military action as a way to shore up support for him? Whatever you think, we really want to hear your opinion on this, uh, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Gene in Detroit. Gene, what's on your mind? Hello, good morning, Stephen. Hey, Gene. Uh, the professor is uh, quite right in uh, his historical uh, outline of what's our chronic misunderstanding and ignorance of that entire area. And it's not worth uh, sacrificing uh, the lives of, of Americans or anyone over uh, trying to uh, instigate a conflict that is pointless and would be endless. Uh, I'd like to say, though, that uh, uh, this history goes back even further uh, to the end of World War One, when the British installed the father of the Shah, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 did not depose him until the middle of World War Two, uh, in favor of his son, when he threatened to join Hitler and Mussolini, uh, uh, the Axis during the war, and and you can see how uh, the B-52s being staged in Diego Garcia, a joint British and uh, American base in, in the Indian Ocean is, again, uh, the diplomatic threats, the military threats, uh, they're all pointless. I'd like to ask the professor, uh, since the Shah and his family fled uh, to America, mm -hmm. uh, and they never abdicated the peacock throne, would uh, it be a gesture of uh, peace and understanding if the Polybi family were to renounce 
uh, all intentions of ever going back to Iran mm. and resuming their uh, autocratic rule. Mm. Uh, Gene, great question. Uh, thanks very much for the call. Sayyid Khan, uh, talk about this, this, again, this history, this long history in Iran and the role that this family is still playing in internal politics in that country. Yeah, thank you for the question, Gene, and, and, and I uh, commend you on, on just a wonderful historical perspective there. Yes, uh, the eldest son of, of the Shah, uh, Reza Pahlavi, is, is based here, uh, spends, uh, splits his time between the West Coast and D.C., he has been uh, very, very uh, uh, omnipresent, one can say, within the halls of power, lobbying uh, whomever will listen about what he feels as though he can bring to the table if there is regime change, uh, that the Pahlavi uh, dynasty can be restored. He, he claims that it would be a constitutional monarchy similar to that of uh, Great Britain. Uh, there has been no evidence uh, in the history of his own family line or that of any of the various monarchies in Iran before that uh, to demonstrate that there will be that level of deference to the democratic process. And even if it was a democratic process, it would be one that would be severely gamed by the monarchy by putting in their own uh, plutocrats and people who were loyal to uh, the monarchy uh, and to the royal family before that. As far as a gesture of goodwill to go ahead and renounce, that would be wonderful. Uh, unfortunately, I don't see him doing that because he still believes that that is not only his birthright, but he, for some whatever reason, feels as though he's best equipped to lead the Iranian people. Uh, but he's also not the only force that is salivating at the idea of regime change. That would also be the one-time designated terrorist organization, the Mujahideen Echelk, the MEK, uh, one uh, uh, that has been violent, uh, that has been paramilitary, shall we even say terroristic in some of their approaches to try to change the equation in Iran, uh, but yet also have found the embrace of uh, people close to the Trump administration, including uh, Rudy Giuliani and John Bolton, who have spoken on several occasions at MEK gatherings and have uh, declared themselves to be open supporters of MEK. Again, uh, Gene, I really appreciate the call and uh, and the questions. Uh, thanks for uh, introducing that. Let's let's go to Derade in Detroit. Derade, welcome to the yes. show. Well, for me, like uh, my opinion is, I really support our president. Whatever he's doing now, he's doing right, the right thing. Because he, we have like the United States, they have a lot of patience. We like, the, especially like the U.S. Army over there. They have really a lot of patience about the Iranian attack. You know, I was interpreter in Iraq for seven years. I was a local national interpreter hmm. for seven years with the Marines over there. And I saw like really, and the first time when I get my job, I was like really looking for money. And then I figured out my job was not not a joke. I have to deal with all that. You know, I have to translate between Iraqis and Americans. I have to let everybody understand what the United States want to do over here. Like, they want to help the Iraqis. They should push here the United States to take Saddam off. In Saddam's days when I was living in Iraq, it was horrible for us. Mm-hmm. They control everything. You can't say nothing. You have and, no freedom. And you feel like things are better in Iraq now because of U.S. intervention? What happened is, the first time, like, yes, it was better. But step by step, when the, all these 
religion people, you know, I don't want to say like what, what's going on, but the religion people they use the religion as a drugs, you know, to to wash the brain of all these young, you know, boys over there, mm. and they start like really things getting worse. Mm. And everybody looks to the United States as a like big devil. Why? They've been support a lot of people in, in the Middle East. Mm. Duray, I I really appreciate the call and the perspective. Again, somebody who's been in the region and knows about the culture and the history. Uh, uh, Saeed Khan, react to what, he's, to what he's saying here. Well, one of the issues, unfortunately, with Iraq is and its complications is that there's always another side. And yes, uh, during uh, the, the regime of Saddam Hussein, uh, it was Kurds and it was uh, the Shi'i who were, who were persecuted. Uh, with the ouster of Saddam, uh, it was then turned uh, upside down, and we find that the Shi'i regimes of people like Nouri al-Maliki uh, started to essentially ethnically cleanse Sunnis out of, uh, out of Baghdad, uh, creating uh, further and further uh, almost a suffocation situation in places like Al-Anbar province and, uh, and Fallujah. So again, it really uh, depends on whom one can ask in, uh, in Iraq, uh, a country that is in many ways ideologically and politically as split as, as ours is today. Regarding uh, the, the demand that uh, people in Iraq see the uh, American forces as a force of good. Again, it's going to be a complicated issue if people felt as though there was greater stability with Iraq before. They may not have agreed with Saddam's policies. They may not have even liked him. But people tend to be creatures of habit and pattern and, and stability. At least you know what, what kind of treatment you're going to get. And let's face it, both with the president's recent pardoning of uh, those who were convicted of, of uh, really unspeakable atrocities against the Iraqi people, as well as the well-documented uh, evidence regarding uh, American troop uh, activities at places like Abu Ghraib prison. Uh, there's going to be uh, a fairly diverse way that even Iraqis will uh, perceive the, the American military. Hmm. Again, Duraid, thanks very much for the call and your perspective Let's go to Tarek in Detroit. Tarek, welcome to Detroit today. Hey, Stephen. Hey. Um, so I guess, first of all, I just wanted to say that Saeed kind of said everything I wanted to say. Um, and so I wanted <laughs> to praise you guys for having such a um, in-depth survey of like the history, because I think one of the things people don't talk about is even if they're the best way to cause chaos is to not create it in the first place. But also, we haven't really talked about the economic sanctions that the U.S. has been leading Iran into it and want to make the decision in the first place. So the whole two-sidesism, or at least there's more than one dimension at play, mm-hmm. is extremely vital. But I think like one thing that I'm trying to get at, and I see we saw this with Syria, we see this with the Russian intervention, the Russian interference in the election. I'm sorry, I'm trying to be quick, because I know you guys got to close up pretty soon. <laughs> but um, how does one, how do you guys recommend people get more informed about these issues? Because it's one thing to say, read more books or be more involved. But I think a lot of people may be listening or otherwise don't really know how to get the survey on their own. And so we see a lot of these one dimensional takes on Twitter, social media, et cetera, that may be pushing people into a less than ideal stance on what war is and how it pervades people's lives. Hmm. And so I guess what could you all say to that to help people, I think, be more informed than just kind of de- de- eradicate the one dimensionalism that happens in these survey analytics. Wow. Wow. Uh, Tarek, I really appreciate the call and uh, and the comment. Uh, Saeed, react to what he's saying. Yeah. First of all, thank you, Tarek, uh, for, for shedding light on, on the importance of, uh, of being well-informed. Uh, I, I think these days, perhaps the first way to do that is to 
get out of any explicit or implicit silos in which we find ourselves. Uh, these are conversations that are happening uh, with one another, with various news agencies, not only here in the United States, but I would even submit to move out of just looking at American media, uh, look at what the rest of the world is providing, because there's other perspectives, there's other emphases that are there, uh, and also to try to understand that what is going on in Iran, what is going on in the region, uh, these have other dots to which we need to connect things. So I'll just give you one example since you mentioned economics. Uh, China is uh, embarking on by far its most ambitious, uh, ambitious project, which is the so-called Belt and Road Initiative, which is a resurrection of the old Silk Road, which will go all the way from eastern China to Rotterdam, the port city in the Netherlands. Well, it's important to recognize that the overland route is going straight through Iran. So as a result of that, and understanding how China is so essential when it comes to the global economy, how our economy is uh, in a state of codependency with it, it's very important to see other actors uh, that are involved, what are their stakes in this, uh, what are they going to be willing to tolerate, uh, both uh, from a standpoint of rhetoric and action, what will they not what are the tipping points uh, when it comes to this? And I can appreciate that that really does require an awful lot of, of bandwidth to try to process all that. Uh, I don't think that there are any shortcuts by which to do it. Uh, but at the same time, I think that's what makes it exciting. I think that's what makes it vibrant. And I think that's what makes us human. Saeed Khan, Senior Lecturer of Near and Middle East History and Politics at Wayne State University and new director of global studies at Wayne State University. Thanks very much for being with us for this important conversation. Oh, this was wonderful, Stephen. Thanks so much. That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. We're going to have a conversation about the growing wealth disparity in this country and the implications of it going into an election year. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.